Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. We're both at the same time, aren't we? Uh, Martin Luther, whom uh, Jacob referred to earlier, talked about that very fact that we are at one time saint and sinners. That's who we are. God has saved us, but there is still work he's doing in our life. And the spiritual life requires us to come to terms with that reality. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but David went 130 years without taking a bath. I'm not talking about the David in the Bible. I'm talking about Michelangelo's David. Uh, A 20-something-year-old sculptor took a single block of marble and 1501 to 1504 carved out young David, David the shepherd, the shepherd boy with the slingshot in his hand. And uh, he went from, I mean, this statue is 17 feet high. Some of you may have seen it. And for 369 years, it stood in a, outdoors in a plaza in, in Florence where it was made. And so it was pretty filthy. And in 1873, uh, he was moved to his current home, and that was a cleansing that he got for the first time. Uh, Pretty violent scrubbing that used a high concentration of hydrochloric acid to dissolve the grime that had accrued over 369 years. But in 2003, with David's 500th birthday coming up and his birthday suit not looking all that good, uh, they decided to clean, clean him again. And this was a very different kind of thing. They had a team of experts that gathered around like coaches at halftime examining their game plan, figuring out exactly what they were going to do, high-pressure vacuum systems, things sort of like Q-tips to get into the difficult places. They mapped out all the cracks and the accumulation of grime and dirt, and uh, he was a mess. He was a mess because... He had stood outdoors 24-7, exposed to smoke and humid weather and pigeons, and he had been exposed to lightning strikes. Once in 1527, uh, there was a riot, and someone broke off his arm. They had to, that had to be replaced earlier. But this time, they were so much gentler. They worked to clean him up and put him inside uh, so that his 500th birthday would be worth celebrating. Now... That cleansing David received ought to help us appreciate the fact that what Michelangelo presented in that statue, beautiful statue, 17 feet high, he would have towered over Goliath. And I think that was intentional. He presented to us that young, youthful David. David before he was soiled. David before anything had gone seriously wrong in his life. David who killed the mighty Goliath. That David is who Michelangelo put before us. And on his 500th birthday, he was clean again and able to sort of represent that. That sort of reminds us that when you follow David's story in the scripture, which is a really interesting story with lots of details, when you follow David's story in scripture, that's the way he is at first. He is this youthful man after God's own heart, young, vibrant, faithful, uh, 
follower of God who is unsoiled, unsullied, unstained. But eventually, he becomes king, and he gets all of those things, soiled, sullied, and stained. Soiled by his selfishness at times, sullied by his sin, stained by passion and pride. He became, in some ways, as filthy as a pigeon-covered statue in a public square. And it took more than a techniques to rid David of that dirt. Only confession and repentance could remove the soiled sin in David's life and restore him to greatness, this one who had once been a giant killer. The restoration project in Florence is pretty spectacular, really, but it compares not at all to the one that took place in Jerusalem years and years before. David was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14 says. But over time, as David accrued power, power did to David what it does to every sinful human being. It corrupted him in many ways. And before long, David's whole life was getting what he wanted, power and prestige and victory. And that had had an impact upon David's heart, that control center of David's life. He may have once been a man after God's own heart, but more and more David's heart was turned to having what David wanted. And there's not a better place to see that than in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. This is a picture of a morally bankrupt David. The kings have gone off to war with their soldiers, but David has stayed there in the city of David in Jerusalem. And he is gazing out the window one day and he sees Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's soldiers. And he sees her, and he decides that he wants her. And since he is the king, he can have whatever he wants. And so he sends emissaries to go get her and to bring her to his bedroom. Now, my Bible, this edition, has a subject title over chapter 11 that says David commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's technically accurate. She was someone else's wife, and so he was committing adultery. But don't be mistaken about his sin. This was more than lust and adultery. This was power and rape. He is taking a woman who could not say no to him into his life. And David thinks as king, he can do whatever he well pleases. It's an abuse of power. And then when it turns out she's expecting a child, he's got to deal with that. And so he summons Uriah from the front lines and brings him back home and asks him how the battles are going and then sends him home to stay with his wife. Well, uh, Uriah's got some integrity to him, and he slept on the front door of, of David's palace. And when David found that out, he said, well, I, how could I go home to my wife and her comfort when, in fact, uh, my brothers are dying on the front lines? And so David calls in his henchman, a man named Joab, one of his generals, and he says, I want you to see to it that Uriah is taken care of. Send him to the front line, put him in a vulnerable place, and then withdraw the troops. Assure his death in battle. David moves from abuse of power and rape to murder and plotting and the soil on this man who had once been described as a man after God's own heart is just accumulating deeply. But the last verse of chapter 11 says this. 
it was pretty clear. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her, after Uriah had died, brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The sin has accumulated. And so the Lord reaches out to this shepherd king who has now wandered astray like a sheep and tries to bring him back into relationship. The first verse of chapter 12, the very next verse from the one I just read says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet, and he is a prophet to the king. He's somebody who speaks to the king and tells him exactly what God says, nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. He speaks the word of God to the king. And when Nathan finds out what David has done, he's told to call David into account. Nathan's a crafty sort of fellow, and uh, he's going to devise a way of getting his message into David's heart. It'd be nice to be able to say that after David realized that what he had done displeased the Lord, that he turned to God and went to the temple and offered a sacrifice and asked forgiveness and tried to clean up his mess. But he didn't. David didn't seek God out. And we really can't fault him for that because most of us are pretty much like that as well. We're no more likely to seek God when we're caught deeply in a sinful, destructive behavior than a, than a bank robber is likely to go see if he can find the nearest police officer. It's the pangs of guilt that originate in our minds. Those don't come from us. That's God too reaching out. God was reaching out to David. His spirit seeks to make us aware of our need for cleansing and forgiveness. We don't seek him in our sin. God seeks us. And I suspect David had already been experiencing some of those pangs of guilt because in one of his Psalms, he later wrote Psalm 32. He's talking about how blessed it is to be forgiven. But he says, before I experience forgiveness, before I confess my transgression to the Lord, he said, while I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's the guilt that he's experiencing, God reaching out to him, and still David hasn't turned to him. It's going to take more to get David's attention than a guilty conscience. He was persuaded that only he himself and Bathsheba and Joab knew what had taken place. But he had ignored the obvious, hasn't he? God clearly knew what had taken place in David's life. God, who loves David, who knows David, is unwilling to let this distance in their relationship continue even after these wretched things that David has done. And so he uses this servant named Nathan, a prophet, to reveal to Nathan, uh, to reveal to David his knowledge of what has taken place. He tells Nathan what's happened and sends Nathan to speak to Bathsheba, and he confronts his message in a, a story, a parable. Uh, you've probably read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He says, there's a man in your kingdom who's got a, lots and lots of sheep, but he had a visitor coming, and instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he went to this poor man's house who had only one sheep, and that sheep was more of a pet to him. Uh, it was one that he loved, and he stole that sheep and brought it home and killed it and gave it to his, his guest. And David just became irate. He stood up and said, you bring that man in here to me and we'll take care of him. And that's when Nathan points his crooked prophetic finger in David's face and says, you are the man. And David then 
has this sudden realization that all that's gone on in his life is known. It's not, it's not at all secret. And so he doesn't pretend to hide anymore. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. We might have thought he would say, I have sinned against Bathsheba. I have sinned against Uriah. I have sinned against Joab. I have sinned against my army. I have sinned against my nation. He could have listed a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of human names there. <clears throat> but he realizes that ultimately sin is something we do first against God. There's a lot of collateral damage, no doubt, when we turn in our selfishness and rebel against God's will and God's ways. And David understood that. David's choices in this whole episode had been about himself and God, about whether or not he would live life in God's will or not, or out of his own selfishness. It was about God, and David had repeatedly chosen his own way rather than choosing God. That's what happens to us, you me, in our sinful choices also. We sometimes think that... Um, this keeps us from facing the fact that sin is against God. So we sometimes think that our choices are between one thing or another in this world. Uh, it's, my, it's a choice between my choices and my health, that I eat this way, live this way, act this way, smoke this thing or that thing, drink this thing or that thing. It's between me and my health. We don't ever recognize that those choices are often choices between us and our God. The will of God for us and not. Or we think this destructive habit in my life is just between me and the habit. It's not. Because it destroys the lives of others and one's own life, it's between a person and God. We may think that this relationship that's getting out of control is between me and this other person and this other... No, this is between the person and God. Sin is the refusal to do the will of God. It is the choice of our own selfish will over God's ways. And every time it is against God. That's why Jesus said, I suspect, at least one more reason why. He said there are two great commandments. But the first is you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other one is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you violate the first one, I promise you, it's impossible to live with love for neighbor on the second one. And sure enough, there will be collateral damage in our life. The fact is, we may not much deal with our sin as worshipers unless we have some gross sin like David's to bring to God. Those need to be brought, but there is more. We need to be willing to name as sin those things in our lives those things in our lives that are cho choices we make outside the will and purpose of God. You say, well, David repented. That's great. But it's only because he got caught, right? Um, well, if that's so, then it wasn't true contrition and it wasn't true worship. Or you say, maybe he's just afraid of the consequences and that's why he's turning to God right now. Then it's not contrition and it's not worship. Or you say, maybe uh, he just feels guilty and he wants to get rid of a guilty conscience. Well, if that's the case, it's not contrition, it's not worship. If it is true worship, what has happened here is that confronted with his sin, David realizes the weight of all that we've talked about, about what he's turned against God. Sin is ultimately against God. And when the scripture says that God is jealous for us, it's a holy jealousy, which means it's nothing like jealousy we know. It means that 
the jealousy of God is that he loves us so much, he's unwilling to let us give our lives to something that only he can fulfill. And when we choose sin, God's jealousy is his desire, his burning desire to have us, for us to have him in, his, in our lives. And so he is jealous for us, holy jealousy. And it's at that point where God's holy jealousy has worked to bring David back into relationship with himself that David begins to worship as a sinner. I have sinned against the Lord is the beginning place for sinners to worship. It's David's confession. Not there out of fear of consequences or because he's been caught or because he feels guilty. I think more of David than this. Listen to the words of his poetry in Psalm 51. In fact, it wouldn't hurt us just to read this psalm together. So why don't we read it aloud? This is identified as to the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, Teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The word of the Lord for the people of God. The title of the message today is Worshiping as a Sinner because that's a base that authentic worship always has to touch on its way home. We come to God always as sinners. We never come simply as saints. The entire sacrificial system of Israel's ancient worship was built around that fact. It was a series of offerings and cleansings that were to be made as a way of recognizing that human beings, we are soiled 
And the cleansing that we need can't come from ourselves; It has to come from God. They were outward reminders of that. We need mercy and we need forgiveness and we need atonement and we can't provide that for ourselves. David was a king. David could have given an order and had herds of cattle marched into the temple and sacrificed for worship, just like that, if that would have been all that it required. But that actually seems like an easy route. Just go kill a cow and your sins are forgiven. David knew better than that. He understands that from a sinner, God is looking for more than sacrifice and burnt offerings or hymns and anything we do in worship. God is looking for a broken and contrite heart as the sacrifice that's acceptable to him. He's looking for us to surrender ourself and say yes to his will over our selfishness. That's the posture that we assume when we worship as a sinner. The fact is we may not much deal with our sin as worshipers unless it's really gross like David's was, but there's more. Isaiah is aware of his sinfulness. Jacob reminded us that, that last week. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, I, I live among a people of unclean lips, and God provides what Isaiah could not provide for himself, cleansing and forgiveness. Isaiah was aware of his sinfulness. David is aware of his sinfulness. And David frequently in prayer invites God to probe around in his life and see if there's anything else there that needs to be confessed. In Psalm 19, there is this prayer at the end. Ask, who can detect his errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. I shall be blameless then and innocent of great transgression. And then this prayer, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a prayer. God, look deep within me and show me anything that needs to be exposed, confessed. I want every thought and action, every word and deed to be acceptable to you. The end of Psalm 139, after this beautiful psalm about God's full knowledge of us, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a prayer of, called a prayer of examine. Lord, I put myself before you, point out what I need to see so that I can, with a broken and contrite heart, give it back to you in confession. Jesus confronted the Pharisees with their sin. Outwardly, they looked really righteous. People were in awe of their religion. But Jesus was looking deeper. He looked into the heart. and He reminded some of the Pharisees of this when he said to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so the outside may become clean. We intend to worship God. We come with an awareness of just how much we need forgiveness, not just occasionally, but constantly. How deep the issue of sin actually penetrates our heart. How much of our life, lives revolve around our selfish choices. We may have managed to clean up the outside of the cup so that it's presentable to people, but the goal of the life of the Spirit is not a clean outside, it is a changed inside. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and temperance and faith, those fruit of the Spirit God wants in us. If the greatest commandment is to love God and love people, then the greatest sin would be to act unlovingly, to live selfishly for our own desires and demand that God meet our needs and being... Uh, protecting ourselves so we don't enter into relationships lovingly with others. That would be a great sin if those are the two great commandments. 
but we often don't take time to look inside and see what's in the cup. We just clean up the outside and go on. But God asks us to bring our cup and to bring the inside as well as the outside. That's our sacrifice. That's what pleases him. That's what he's looking for. That's what he will not despise. We come often with our pockets full of rationalizations and excuses that we can deal for why we behave like we did or think like we do or act like we do or said what we said, and we can spread those all out before God, and he just says, I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart, not for a bunch of excuses. And if we do that, we don't worship. We sometimes come to worship full of all of our own hurts and wounds and disappointments that others have inflicted on us, but we're unaware of the ways that we've lived sinning against love, failing to live up to, putting demands on people who fail to live up to our expectations and then judging them for it, how protected we've been of ourselves. We don't worship. You see, what happens is that we need a Savior, not just once upon a time when we accepted Jesus as our Savior and asked Him to forgive our sins. We needed a Savior then, yes, but we need a Savior every single day. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is both of those all the time, and we are in constant need of the grace of God, not just, uh, not just a long time ago, but all the time. And authentic worship means just that. We... We don't come with our flocks and herds. The only thing we're asked to bring to worship is a broken and contrite heart. You hear that? God said, this is the sacrifice he will not refuse. A broken and contrite heart. And that's difficult for us. Ancient Israel had priests who took their herds and tried to find the unblemished, the perfect animal to use for sacrifice. But we come with our blemished hearts and our imperfections and give those to God. We become part of our, we come to give part of ourself to die, to be crucified. And that's the sacrifice God does not despise. How do you take an inside look? Well, we could spend some time with that. Uh, we need a mirror sometimes. Maybe it is those prayers of examine where we just say, Holy Spirit, show me what I need to confess. I will do it. What I need to forsake, and I'll do it. Sometimes it's reading in God's Word, which is described in James 1 as being like a mirror. And we look in there and we see ourselves. We may see ourselves in this story about Samuel and uh, about David and Nathan this morning or David and Bathsheba. But we, we read those things and we see ourselves in the story and we bring that brokenness to God. It may be that we have the people of God in our life, somebody honest enough to speak to us about our blind spots. And if we do, we're blessed. And sometimes that's one way, like Nathan pointing out David's sin. Worshiping as a sinner is difficult. It means every time we come, a part of us needs to die, and we struggle with that. But that's the life of the disciple. It's taking up our cross and dying to ourself and following Jesus Christ. Can you worship as a sinner? Well, there's no other way. It's the only way we can worship. We come not because we're worthy to worship God, but because God is worthy of our worship. And we come as sinners. We come with broken and contrite hearts as our sacrifice. We offer to God what we've said and thought and done that's contrary to love, contrary to God's will, contrary to God's ways, contrary to God's word. We offer to God the ways in which we failed to act in accord with his love, failed to perform his will, neglected to follow his ways. We offer that to God when we come to worship. That's our sacrifice. As sinners, we come to worship dependent on the God's grace and mercy. 
and most fully expressed in that great sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard said that saints consume grace like a 747 consumes fuel at takeoff. We live by it constantly. We suck it up. We burn it. We depend on grace. We never get free from it. We rely on his sacrifice. We trust his salvation. And just like after Isaiah confessed his sin and the seraphim came and touched his lips and he said, you're clean now, that's the gospel. That's the good news. We come with our broken sacrifices that God will accept, but the gospel is that God does accept that. The good news is found so many ways. 1 John 1, verses, verse 9, may have been a verse you learned very early in your Christian life. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you bring a broken and contrite heart? Did you confess your sins? The good news is God accepts that. You're forgiven. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that, Therefore, in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It may have been a guilty conscience that brought you to confess. It may have been some other thing that brought it to your mind. But listen, in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. There is forgiveness. David himself learned that and wrote it in Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Yes, it's possible to worship as a sinner. In fact, there's no other way. You just have to bring the right sacrifice with you. And God accepts that and offers his forgiveness. Even if you were as dirty as David, God would say, clean heart and a right spirit are yours from this moment. God is full of grace and mercy. He treats us according to his loving kindness, not according to our behavior. But we must worship as sinners. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are sinners and we need a Savior. We so often done and thought and said things we should not have. Sometimes that's been subtle. Too often these things have been blatant and willful. We have too often out of our laziness or sloth or anger, or hatred, left undone those acts of love and mercy and kindness we ought to have done. Our cowardice has caused us to neglect to speak up when we should have. We're not concerning ourselves enough with those people and needs in our world that are your constant concern. We've often allowed bruised relationships to go untended. We've, in our pride, refused to humble ourselves. We've idolized things in our world, politics and power and possessions and positions, putting them before you, Lord. We could go on and on. We are grateful this morning, Father, for our Savior Jesus, whose death on the cross was for our sins. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace extended to us unconditionally. And this morning we've come to worship. So here are our sacrifices, our broken and contrite hearts. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast. 
with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.